This is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, building futures close to home at campuses in Morgantown, Kaiser, and Beckley. Information at wvu.edu. Embassy Suites by Hilton Charleston, an all-suite hotel and conference center minutes from Yeager Airport and Capital Market. Reservations and brasserie dining information available at hilton.com. Segra, providing fiber-based communication solutions. Segra, freedom to grow. More information at segra.com. Welcome back to the Legislature Today. I'm Randy Yoey. Bob Brunner is away this week. Now, yesterday was crossover day in the legislature, the final day for bills to leave their chamber of origin for consideration across the hall. Senator Mike Oliverio, a Republican from Montegalia County, stood on the Senate floor Wednesday night to highlight the importance of the deadline. He said when he first arrived at the legislature 30 years ago, the process could only be described as chaotic and opaque, something that the crossover deadline now hopes to fix. I worked for a couple years on a concept known as the 50-day rule, trying to create a situation where the last 10 days of the legislative session, each body would have an opportunity to thoroughly study the work of the other body in an effort to create a process that was transparent and a process that would produce good public policy. So as we stand here on the 50th day and somehow I have returned to the process, I say two things to you. If you don't like the 50-day rule, blame me. If you like the 50-day rule, let's do a great job these last 10 days together. Musicians, theater folks, painters, and sculptors filled the Capitol Rotunda on Arts Day at the 2023 legislature. We found themes of longevity among the muses, along with an amiable artistic forecast for the future. They do much more than fiddle around at the Augusta Heritage Center in Randolph County celebrating 50 years of preserving and elevating traditional West Virginia art forms. Executive Director Seth Young says the Heritage Center's annual July series workshops have become an international arts mecca. It's three weeks of music, art, craft, folklore, foodways and folkways on the campus of Davis Nelkins College campus. People come from all over the world to study things such as Cajun and Creole culture, swing music, classic country music, bluegrass, vocal, blues, old time, and of course, craft, foodways and folklore. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Mountain Stage is celebrating 40 years of live music performances. Associate Director Mallory Richards says with a network of more than 290 stations airing the program around the globe, Mountain Stage is West Virginia's calling card to the world. It's always there for you. You can tune in wherever you are. You could be in the car driving down the road or you can join us here in Charleston, West Virginia for a live show. Um, it really goes back to hospitality. Everyone's treated equally. Um, our artist backstage, it's like welcoming family home. 
10 or so years ago, when West Virginia public schools faced serious budget challenges, many said, we don't need the arts, they're not a priority, we don't need that band or theater department. Look around you, in 2023, the opposite seems true. Singing for the Senate, the Appalachian Children's Choir is living proof of what State Curator of Arts, Culture, and History Randall Reed Smith says is a flourishing font of artistic creativity. I was just up Tuesday at the Wood County Board of Education to present awards. They were recognizing all the arts, and they just put back in their school system fifth grade band. I mean, that is huge. And we just had the last two days, the West Virginia State Arts Conference, we had 147 arts organizations and individual artists that have wonderful outreach programs into our schools. And the thing that they were all excited about, about is that arts are back. Arts are great. And today we're here at Arts Day. We have all 55 booths filled. It is all about the arts. Reed Smith says the only pure academic pursuit is the arts that everything else in life is just an elective. A bill to require police training for contact persons with autism spectrum disorders, Alzheimer's or related dementias, passed the House of Delegates on Thursday morning. As Emily Rice reports, the bill now awaits the governor's signature. Senate Bill 208 would make changes to clarify existing code and add new training to law enforcement officers' mandated in-service training every three years. Delegate Dave Foggin, a Republican from Wood County, was the only lawmaker to vote against the bill and stood to speak in opposition. I don't understand it uh, real well. I think once we train a police officer, then we're going to um, maybe criticize them, punish them. You might implement policy where they have to do certain things uh, with an autistic person that they didn't realize uh, was even autistic. It's very difficult to identify someone with autism let alone when you're in any emergency situation where their behavior may, may be a lot different. Foggin also told legislators that he believed the new training could hurt an already dwindling number of people applying to be police officers in West Virginia, suggesting teachers should have to train to respond to an individual with autism, not law enforcement. Delegate Danielle Walker, a Democrat from Monongalia County, stood and spoke in support of the bill, sharing with the gallery that one of her sons is diagnosed with autism. As a mother who has a child with a diagnosis of autism, he is not autistic. This is life-saving for my child and for other children who may be traveling through the borders of West Virginia in this body and throughout West Virginia, we support and we protect people with different abilities. I don't say that my child has a disability. I just feel that he's abled in a different way. And he is a driver. He's also a peer recovery coach. And I'm proud of that. But at one point in time, Devin Michael was nonverbal until he was four and a half. Walker said she did not see the bill as disrespectful to first responders, but as a chance to offer them more complete training. 
Delegate Walter Hall, a Republican from Kanawha County, rose and spoke in support of Senate Bill 208, agreeing with sentiments from Delegate Walker and adding his own insight. I am a uh, community educator for the Alzheimer's Association, one of seven across the state, and uh, I have trained our first responders in the city of St. Albans, and I will do that in many other areas across our state as well. And I am currently going through the process to become a community educator for the Autism CARES Act. CARES, Community Autism Resources Education System. I am standing here in support of this. I appreciate what you do with your child, and I am a big yes for this bill. Thank you. Senate Bill 208 passed the House of Delegates with 95 voting yes, one no from Delegate Foggin, and four members absent. Reporting for the legislature today, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Late yesterday afternoon, the House Finance Committee advanced a $4.6 billion general revenue budget. In a surprise move, Governor Jim Justice increased the state revenue estimate by $850 million. House Finance Committee Chair Vernon Chris, a Republican from Wood County, says figuring in the additional money in the coming fiscal year revenue estimates comes as an executive prerogative. The legislature is given those dollars by the governor on how much money you're allowed to spend or put in the budget. He allowed that he added an additional $850 million in a letter yesterday to allow us to see if we can if we need to use those monies for the things that we've all talked about doing for years, and we're trying to press those out. House Finance Committee member John Williams, a Democrat from Monongalia County, wondered where the governor found $850 million projected revenue dollars. I don't know. That's a heck of a couch cushion. And I, I asked that question myself uh, in finance to see if there was anybody uh, from the governor's office that could, could answer that question. Um, I'm eager to find the answer uh, to that out myself. Both delegates Chris and Williams agree the budget challenge now is to reconcile the revenues expected to come in with the many state expenditures both mandated and proposed. You're trying to backfill the needs like we did with the, with the colleges and the CTCs, setting aside $100 plus million aside for them, trying to take care of the other necessary items that have been neglected for some time and we're trying to catch up with those, as well as keeping the budget for the taxpayers at a minimum cost raising the budget. This year is a little different in that we have this massive uh, tax cut bill that's going to blow a billion dollars into the budget and that's before you count some other bills that this legislature has passed that's going to knock some holes in the budget and, and quite frankly I'm concerned about our state's ability to to balance uh, perhaps this budget but certainly looking at out years what that's going to look like. The Senate Education Committee took up a bill aimed at addressing the state's bus driver shortage today. Chris Schultz has more. House Bill 2380 would clear the way for retired bus operators to resume working for their local school districts without losing their benefits. In recent years, a shortage of bus operators across the state has left school systems with no other choice than to cancel routes, interrupting students' education. The Senate Education Committee approved a functionally identical bill, Senate Bill 56, in the first days of the session, but that bill has languished in the Senate Finance Committee. Senator Mike Oliverio, a Republican from Monongalia County, identified a fiscal note of $250,000 attached to the Senate bill as a potential barrier to passage. 
I think the fiscal note is completely misguided. I can't see an additional dollar of cost of allowing a retired bus driver who comes back and subs as a bus driver as opposed to paying somebody who's not retired. And that retired bus driver who comes back and drives an extra 10 days, maybe over the 140-day limit, uh, he or she incurs no additional uh, pension benefit for that, so there should be no liability to the pension. Joe White, executive director of the West Virginia School Service Personnel Association, told the committee that he and his staff were also greatly concerned by the fiscal note. I can only tell you what was testified in the other chamber's finance, and that was that the amount on the fiscal note is what they put when they don't have an answer. Basically, that's what they see. Committee Chair Senator Amy Grady, a Republican from Mason County and a teacher, said she has seen the impact of the bus driver shortage firsthand. We have these students who have missed 19 days of school this school year. That's 19 instructional days. And not that's not including days they may miss because they're sick or they have a doctor's appointment or something else. So that's 19 days of school just for not having a bus driver. And I know if that happens at my school, that happens at all kinds of other schools. And I think it's a, it's a huge problem. I really like to get this fiscal note taken care of. Grady concluded by saying there would be further discussion with the Finance Committee to resolve the impasse. And the committee reported the bill to the full Senate with a recommendation it do pass. For the legislature today, I'm Chris Schultz. With West Virginia's abortion ban clarified and solidified in state code by recent legislation, Appalachia Health News reporter Emily Rice brings us a discussion on women's and maternal health in West Virginia. Thanks, Randy. Today I'm joined by Delegate Rick Griffith and Senator Patricia Rucker to discuss maternal health in West Virginia. So it's been a big topic of conversation across the board, but I wanted to start a little bit zoomed out, if we could, um, for one of Delegate Griffith's bills here that made some movement today. That's gonna be 2075 to provide a means to classify when medications should be continued or stopped for patients. What can you tell me about that bill? I'm a pharmacist and I've observed for many years a problem with the discontinuation of medicines by a physician and also by the misunderstanding that patients have for the intended use of the medicine. So this bill would address both of, both of those issues. What often happens with a patient is they will attend a session with their doctor and be told to discontinue a particular medicine. Well, many times they're elderly. Sometimes they, they don't remember that. They don't understand the generic names and other factors. And so what my bill would require is for the physician to contact the pharmacy of the patient to tell them what has been discontinued and what is to be continued. Because what often happens is patients will go to the doctor, have a medicine discontinued and maybe one added. The pharmacy's not aware of that factor, but then what occurs is three weeks to a month later, they'll call their store and say, fill all my medicines. Well, we do and one of them was supposed to be discontinued. It might have been communicated to the patient, but not to the pharmacy. So the first aspect is to require the prescriber to notify the pharmacy so they can take it off of their profile and not accidentally fill it. The second aspect of it is something that I've observed many years also, and that is that people don't understand what their medicines are. 
it says take one daily. And then there'll be a long generic name like hydrochlorothiazide, and they don't know what that means. And so they have similar looking and similar sized medicines, and they get them confused. One incident that happened in particular, if, to my experience, was a lady who was actually poisoning herself accidentally because she thought she was taking her antihistamine. It was not, it was her heart medicine, and she was doubling the dose because it wasn't clearing up her congestion. Had on the prescription label, the doctor included in the instructions, take one daily for heart and for the other medicine, take one daily for allergy, that wouldn't have happened. Which is particularly important with seniors and early onset Alzheimer's patients, especially since sometimes they're not even the person administering the medicines. There may be two siblings that are coming to the house and they can't tell what the medicines are either, but they could call and ask their brother or sister, did you give mom or heart medicine? Well, they'll know they did because it says for heart. Now there's obvious exceptions to this, and that's when a patient does not want the intended use for the medicine on the label because it might be embarrassing or they, they just may want to be private about it. Okay. And so the bill would allow for the physician to omit it in those cases. Okay, absolutely. And so while we've got, you know, a pharmacist here and someone on the front lines of a lot of legislation dealing with the fact, um, I'll go ahead and bring up the lawsuit with uh, Gen Biopro against the state for Mifeprestone. Uh, that's going to be the two-pill medical abortion pill. Um, what can you tell me about that in the midst of legislating? I'll ask you, Senator Rucker. Um, and then you can also chime in, obviously, to explain the medication. But... What is it like legislating around those, you know, federal level lawsuits that are going on? So obviously we do not interfere. When there's a lawsuit, we try to, you know, pretty much stay away from um, that. But when it comes to uh, what we did in the legislature this uh, session, it was essentially just language clarifying and returning what we already had before. So it wasn't new. And that language is about a patient's right to know. So their right to know about the medication and the side effects and the possibilities of reversal if they change it. But the whole point is just knowledge. And that's all that we were doing. Absolutely. And that was um, Senate Bill 552, the woman's right to know. And that got some uh, discussion within the chamber yesterday, and I think you made an excellent point at the end. Um, if you could speak to that just a little further, and I think you mentioned uh, wrapping women in information. If you could speak to that bill a little bit further. Sure, thank you very much. Um, yes, obviously this is a very sensitive issue for women. Um, no matter what the situation may be where um, she was raped, or a victim of incest, or the child has been found to have a fetal anomaly or something that is clear it's going to not survive um, past birth. Whatever those reasons are, we want to make certain that that woman has all the information that she should have and also have access to resources to help, counseling, support services. Um, and because every single situation is unique, we just want to make certain that they have the maximum amount of information and the maximum amount of resources and they choose how much 
you know, what they want to reach out, what they need for help and support. And so our role is to just make certain that that woman has everything that could possibly help and support her in her decision and afterwards in dealing with um, what occurred. So um, I really think that that's just super important and um, may actually um, help their mental health for the future. And along those lines, uh, I was interested in asking, and obviously I'd love to hear your perspective as a pharmacist on this, um, removing the certificate of need from birthing centers. Now, there's a little bit of a two, two ways to look at this. There's one that perhaps, what if there become too many of them? But then there's the argument right now that's we need them. We need this in rural areas. We need uh, accessible care. So what can you tell me about the effects that removing certificate of need from birthing centers are going to have in actuality. So, for those who don't know, and I don't mean to, you know, take yeah. the whole, uh, but the, removing the certificate of need basically means that you can open birthing centers without going through this um, sometimes very long, lengthy process of getting permission and making certain that there aren't. Um, you know, too many around in an area. Um, and so it does allow for, for more birthing centers. Having said that, um, like, I'm not really concerned that there's gonna be too many. Um, if that becomes a problem, I'd love to have like, okay, let's do something about it. But the reality is um, birthing centers, it's only a small number of women that choose to use birthing centers for giving birth. The vast majority do prefer going to a hospital. The vast majority of OBGYNs also prefer it being done in a hospital. If there's any kind of um, risk with the pregnancy or with the birth, it's always at a hospital. So the birthing centers, um, you know, at the end of the day, it, it really is a small, small number of women that choose that option. And I just think it's wonderful to have options for those who do want to have some, you know, give birth in a more home-like setting, um, not be so sterile. And if they're able to, and that is their choice, I think it's great that we have that in West Virginia. But, um, but I'm not really concerned that removing the certificate of need is going to all of a sudden just cause an explosion. Absolutely. Uh, but there are concerns about, like uh, Delegate Daniel Walker brought up, complicated pregnancies within this system. Would these birthing centers be able to handle those? And I think you spoke to that in the Senate as well. Yeah, so, I, 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 so I mean, I have to say that if there's any complication, it, the, um, both the doula, the midwife, the doctor, they always say we need to go to a hospital if there's any issues or complications. Um, so birthing centers, I mean, they may be able to handle certain type of complications, like it depends, right? Like um, some of them can handle things like a baby needing to shift and things like that. But if there's any risk to the mother or the child, it, it's gonna be sent. And one of the things about these birthing centers is, as you know, we don't have enough hospitals. We don't have enough hospitals with birthing units. And you know, this is just gonna give an option in more areas of the state where it will be a lot closer to home than maybe traveling two hours to a hospital that has a NICU or PICU. Okay, absolutely. And that access to rural health has been such a huge uh, topic of conversation throughout this session. Uh, in our last few minutes here, I wanted to just talk about health in general and um, Delegate Griffith, you had a bill, it's 2023. Um, it was in committee to expand funding for school safety using care and infrastructure funds. Um, what kind of, obviously yesterday was crossover day, we've got a lot of things shifting, moving parts. Um, what's some of the health legislation that you're most proud of this session? 
Well, one reason that that bill is important to me is what I know about our public schools from experience. Uh, we have some schools today that can't lock their doors during the day. The doors have malfunctioned, so they put a chain between two handles. And obviously they can't chain that during the day for fire safety. So during the day there's easy access there. And so my concern about that with uh, Delegate Larry Rowe was while we have this surplus, I don't think there's anything that we might invest in that would be more important or even bring business to West Virginia than to ensure we have the safest schools in the country. And so man traps were a big deal and we were looking into that and hoping that as the budget process plays out that it might be considered to fix all of this at once, get it over with. And another aspect of that, I'd like to see the state uh, institute through a bill or some process that best practices are always instituted with any new school construction. What happens with a new school construction is there's some discretionary money at the end and the staff may say, well, we'd really like a computer center, but I would like to have certain safety features be mandatory and not omitted in any process to make our schools safe. Absolutely. I think that's something we can all agree on. Well, unfortunately, I think we are out of time. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Back to you, Randy. Thanks so much for that, Emily. Tune in to the legislature today, Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. We'll have more news and interviews from the 2023 legislative session. And remember, West Virginia Public Broadcasting is covering the session daily on our radio news program, West Virginia Morning, and on our news site at wvpublic.org. We also broadcast the daily floor sessions of both the House and Senate on the West Virginia channel, and we stream those on YouTube as well. I'm Randy Yowie. Thanks for joining us. Have a great evening. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, building futures close to home at campuses in Morgantown, Kaiser, and Beckley. Information at wvu.edu. Embassy Suites by Hilton Charleston, an all-suite hotel and conference center minutes from Yeager Airport and Capital Market. Reservations and brasserie dining information available at hilton.com. Segra, providing fiber-based communication solutions. Segra, freedom to grow. More information at segra.com.